As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to Talk Nerdy. Today is Monday, October 23rd, and I'm your host, Kara Santa Maria. And if you can't tell, I'm a little bit sick and I've lost my voice. So you will hear that in the intro and the ad reads for this week's episode. But the episode itself will be fine because it was actually recorded almost two months ago. So I can't wait to get it out. I've been sitting on this one and it bothers me when that happens. I'm so excited to share it with you. But before I do, I want to thank those of you who have made Talk Nerdy possible this week. And we're going to start with those of you who have supported the show by going to www.patreon.com slash talknerdy. Current patrons of the show include Phil T-Bear, Timothy Glover, Rob Shrek, Pedro M. Rosario Barbosa, Jeffrey Perez, Charles Payet, Jonathan Wright, Christian Jeffrey, Stuart Oag, The Honorable Husband, Jafe, Gabriel Felipe Jaramillo Gonzalez, Brian Holden, and last but not least, Jeffrey Sewell. I also want to thank those of you who supported the show in the many other ways that you do each week by rating and reviewing on iTunes, by you know showing your support by shopping in the Talk Nerdy store, and just by sharing information about the show uh, with your friends and family and also via social media. It really, really does help a lot and it means an awful lot to me and it means that I get to keep the show 100% free to download week after week after week, whether I I am traveling around the world, overwhelmed with schoolwork, sick in bed, or what have you. I will always make sure to get you a new episode of Talk Nerdy. And this week is no exception. It's a really exciting one. I get to chat with Dr. Tara Smith. She's actually a professor at Kent State University, and she runs the Smith Emerging Infections Laboratory, where she focuses her research on the transmission and evolution of zoonotic pathogens, specifically on antibiotic-resistant Staphylococcus aureus, you may have heard it referred to as MRSA or as a superbug. So this is a fascinating, fascinating chat, and I'm really excited that I finally get to share it with you guys. So without any further ado, here she is, Tara Smith. Well, Tara, thank you so much for joining me today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on. I am really excited because I have not yet had an episode of Talk Nerdy where I get to dive deep into antibiotic resistance, where I get to talk about zoonotic infections. I mention it all the time on my other podcast, The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, and I mention it all the time on Talk Nerdy when it's relevant because I read about it and I'm fascinated. I love Marin McKenna's books. I loved um, Spillover by David Quammen, and I'm constantly keeping up to date on like the newest info about antibiotic resistance, but now I get to talk to a researcher who <laughs> focuses specifically on this. So I'm so excited about that. Also, my dog's excited. You can hear him barking in the background. Fantastic. You should be. <laughs> I know, What's not right? to love? I know. We've got to make sure that he doesn't have any infections he can give me and vice versa. Um, so 
Is your focus more on uh, antibiotic resistance? Like, I, I noticed that you do focus on Staph aureus, so MRSA, right? Methicillin-resistant right. Staph aureus. Yeah, I've actually had MRSA before. Oh, my goodness. Lots of people have. We get lots of those stories. Yeah, isn't that People's crazy? People's grandma or uncle or they had it or whatever. Yeah, it's very I, common. Have you had it yet? I have not. I have, I've, I've swabbed myself even um, multiple times, and I don't even have it in my nose. So I just seem to be one of those lucky, about a third or quarter of the population that doesn't even carry it at all. So as far as yeah. I've seen. <laughs> I remember when I did get it. And of course, I got like community acquired. Not Gosh, my dog is going mm. crazy. I apologize. I got community acquired MRSA, not hospital acquired MRSA. So, mm. you know, I was able to get through it pretty quickly. I mean, it was still like a month on three different antibiotics, which was uh-huh. not fun. Um but I do remember they had me use this topical in in um, in addition to the oral antibiotics I was taking. It was like mupirocin or something, and I mm-hmm. had to s- put it in my nostrils and put yeah. it. And they tell you to put it on your like on your butthole. Yeah. <laughs> so crazy because apparently that's where people are populated with it. Yeah, it can go <laughs> all over. We've done we've done a lot of studies. We don't usually do swabbing of the butthole or anything like that. But but when we go sample people, we do um, test their nose. So they get to stick a Q-tip up their nose and swab it around. Um, and then we test their throat too. So it's kind of like a strep test where they, you know, get the get the swab and have to gag and stuff. And oh, no. we find a lot of staph in the throat in addition to the nose. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. I didn't even know yep. that that was a thing. I could see that being... I mean, I don't want to say more uh, difficult, but I could see that being at least more painful because I know when you have Staph aureus, a common, um, or MRSA or the superbug, you know, whatever people Mm. like to call it, a common way to get it is just like as a skin infection, right? Uh Like I just had a little... lump in my in my underarm I think it was probably like you know it got in because of shaving and then um because you get the little um skin breaches from Uh from shaving and it looked like a spider bite like that's very common yep yeah yeah so most of the cases are skin and soft tissue infections so abscesses kind of zit like infections um which sometimes will go away upon treatment or sometimes you don't even need treatment at all sometimes if it's you know a doctor may just go and Kind of drain it like you're almost popping a pimple or something and get some mm-hmm. of the pus out, put put a bandage on it and you're good to go. Oh, but really? sometimes, that's... yeah, sometimes they recur and that's when they start to get really, really nasty. Gotcha. Yeah. I, I do remember going to the dermatologist and he did the same thing. He drained it and he, mm-hmm. um, he injected it first and then he drained it, but he actually took some of that as a sample mm-hmm. and, you know, did the Petri test and saw if, and so the original antibiotic he prescribed me, um, I guess was in the methicillin class. And so they had to call me up like three days later and say, uh. <laughs> okay, we tested it. It looks like it's resistant. So we're going to write you a new prescription. Yep. And then I was allergic to the next one because it was a oh, sulfur. No. Oh, it was a whole thing. It was terrible. <laughs> Um, but yeah, you know, when it's really serious, like people get it in hospitals from having catheters or having IVs and they're already very sick, like they can Mm -hmm. die from it. Yeah. Yeah. It causes about 11,000 deaths a year in the United States. So it is not a minor problem. And somewhere, I mean, we don't have great numbers on the number of skin and soft tissue infections like yours that it causes, but Mm -hmm. probably somewhere upwards of 2 million a year. So it's out there. And people, I feel like people misdiagnose it constantly. So many people are like, oh, yeah, it's just, I have a spider bite. And it's like, right. oh, Uh-oh. maybe. And that's one of my, <laughs> one of my pet peeves is, is so many people, they, they Google, right? You know, you, yeah. you have this this infection and you Google it and it looks like a spider bite on the internet. So even if they're in, you know, remote Alaska where you don't have any of the spiders that typically cause these types of, of bites, you know, they automatically have a spider bite or something and it really ends up being MRSA that needs to be treated and you need to think mm-hmm. about transmission and washing your hands and all of these things. So yeah, oh, it's yeah. definitely a big pet peeve of, of mine. I'm sure, Self-diagnosis. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I know. We're all so good at WebMD, aren't we? Um, <laughs> yes. Yeah. Thinking back, you know, I was living in New York when I got it, which I already feel like is such a dirty city and you're on the subway <laughs> with a million people and who knows. Uh, but also my roommate was a personal trainer. He, you know, worked oh, at yeah. a public gym. And so I'm like, yeah, it's a really common way to get more. Oh my gosh, my dog is making me crazy. A regular list 
listeners of the show um, are quite aware of Killer because Killer has a mouth on him. Um, but he's been, I don't know, like people who have listened to the last few episodes, I think, have probably realized that he's been just a little extra punchy. And I can't oh, no. figure out. I know. It's, I think it's because they're doing construction next door. Oh, and yeah. He hears the workers and he wants to play. But yeah. um, so you, you obviously, you, you research this antibiotic resistant, um, specifically, you focus on Staph aureus. But of course, that's not the only um, infection that has become antibiotic resistant, right? There's a lot of different infections that either are or are slowly becoming antibiotic resistant. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so our focus is on Staph aureus, but um, the bacteria get divided into two big groups, the gram positives and the gram negatives. So Staph aureus is a gram positive. Um, We still have some antibiotics to treat them. It's not quite so dire. But for some of the gram negatives, like E. coli and Klebsiella, um, Acinetobacter, um, which has the funnest name ever, but it's really terrible (laughs) bacterium. Um, yeah, they're, they're really running out of drugs to treat them. And so we've seen the resistance of carbapenem-resistant um, enterococci or CREs. Um, we've seen the MCR1 resistance gene, which causes resistance to an antibiotic called colistin. We've seen that originate in China in pigs and spread globally over the last couple of years. So, oh, yeah. I think I yeah. remember covering a story about a woman who died from um, a collagen-resistant MCR1, like, in America. Yeah, but she it's had, been a mess. Yeah. yeah. she. Ha- I think she had, like, multiple horrible things happen to her at the same time, but she was right. maybe the first American <laughs> case, or I remember made news a while back. Yeah, uh, yeah. So when you have, you know, when you have those types of infections, colistin already is one of the one of our nastier antibiotics. It's one that's mm. used as a last resort because it can be very toxic. It can have all these side effects. Um, one guy who was treated with it said it felt like his body was burning from the inside out. So it's oh, it's no. not a nice drug. And when you're down to that one, you're almost at you know scraping the bottom of the barrel. And, and then when that one doesn't work, there's almost nothing left. So for the gram negatives, we're really running out of antibiotics. And there's unfortunately not a whole lot that's in the pipeline. Oh my gosh! I remember talking once to um, Marin McKenna. She, you know, she's a journalist, a science journalist who wrote the book Superbug, and she mm-hmm. has a new book coming out about um, zoonotic infections and antibiotic use in chickens, um, mm-hmm. which we will get to in a second. But I remember once interviewing her years ago when it first became. Um, newsworthy that gonorrhea was becoming antibiotic resistant. Mm -hmm. And she, you know, had been doing a lot of research and doing a lot of investigation. And I asked her, you know, well, what happens? Like what happens when gonorrhea no longer has any drugs that work against it? And she said, ah, I asked this researcher who was working on it the same thing. said, you know, what do you do if you become resistant to all the drugs that can treat gonorrhea? And his answer was, don't get gonorrhea. (laughs) And I was like, that is dire. Yeah, there's not much you can do at that point. I mean, when the drugs run out. The drugs run out. I mean, (laughs) the drugs run out. (laughs) And obviously, drug companies and, you know, chemists are looking at new types of antibiotics all the time. It's not quite as, there's not as good of a profit motive for it, right? But they obviously understand that this is a health crisis. So it's something that's happening. It's just might not happen quick enough. Right. I mean, the problem with antibiotics is that, you know, for other drugs that pharmaceutical companies develop, um, you know, your Viagra's of the world or things like that, mm. you know, you, you you sell a lot of them. You have people that use it repeatedly. You you advertise to get as many people to use this as possible. Yeah, you get free samples to doctors, medicine. whatever. Yeah, right. I mean, heart, stuff they're you know, on for their entire life, right? Mm-hmm. For antibiotics, the best thing to do when you have a new antibiotic is not to use it, right? Because yeah. the more times you use the antibiotic, the more chance bacteria have to be exposed to it, the greater the likelihood that you're going to have some in the population that will develop resistance and then that will spread. So antibiotics just for a pharmaceutical company, it's a terrible economic model because you really want to preserve it and not use it until, again, it's, it's kind of that last line, last resort. So not surprisingly, a lot of companies that used to fund research and, and do research into antibiotics have left the field because it's just not profitable. Yeah, it almost seems like we, we definitely need some 
regulatory initiative, some federally funded pushes or some um, basically some kind of forced R&D here because this is such a public health crisis. Yeah. And there have been some um, some attempts at public-private partnerships so that you have the government do some of the initial work on, you know, identifying potential compounds and and, you know, seeing if they're toxic to humans, if they're going to actually work mm-hmm. as antibiotics, um, to do some of that initial R&D to take some of the, you know, upfront costs um, out of the hands of the pharmaceutical companies so that they can do some of the later testing on the ones that look really promising um, so that it, it, you know, helps their bottom line. It takes out some of that initial really expensive screening and, and testing and things like that. So, they're trying, and there are some some smaller pharmaceutical companies that see this as a niche where they can can you know jump into this and make that kind of their thing. Mm. Um, so there's some hope. I'm not completely despondent, <laughs> but um, you know, this is definitely not the golden era of antibiotics anymore, like it was in the 50s and 60s, where you're you know running running over new antibiotics every time you find a new soil sample. Yeah. And also, I mean, I think that we just got too comfortable with the idea that if we get sick, we can just take care of it willy-nilly, super cheap, super easy, um, and maybe not even be as vigilant about how we take care of it, instead of maybe trying to really focus on preventive measures from getting sick in the first place, which is... Obviously, we can't always, you know, there's always going to be instances where people get infections regardless of how vigilant they are. But um, I think we just got really complacent. We're like, yeah, yeah, if I catch something on a plane, whatever, I'll just, you know, take a Z-pack and I'm fine. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and and you, you should interview Marin sometime about her new book because um, I'm mm-hmm. going through that right now and it is just fabulous. It, you know, her, of course, this new book talks about antibiotics in agriculture and and how antibiotics have been overused so much in that field. And, mm-hmm. and so, you know, you have these miracle drugs that were used as, as largely as growth promotants and as ways to make industrial agriculture, you know, easier, um, easier to do. So overuse in, you know, the agriculture sector, definitely overuse and misuse in the human sector, like you mentioned, you know, just kind of prescribing antibiotics for things that probably weren't appropriate. Um, you know, parents going in with, with sick kids and expecting an antibiotic prescription or else it seems like the doctor hasn't done anything. Yeah. So like for yeah, a viral definitely a lot infection. of complacency. Yep. Absolutely. Yep. And I mean, you mentioned um, agriculture and I think it's one thing that doesn't often make it into the conversation. A lot of times we talk about antibiotic resistance, I, you know, for, for kind of understandable reason, we're always very human focused. We're talking about health and, um, and human illness. And so we talk about, you know, make sure you finish your course, make sure you don't take antibiotics for things that aren't bacterial infections, make sure that you wait until you know you have an infection that your body isn't going to, you know, your immune system isn't going to fight off on its own. But we forget about the side of the conversation, like you mentioned, where pounds like thousands of pounds of antibiotics mm-hmm. are being fed to cows and chickens and turkeys and and pigs every day and it's not necessarily i mean some of it is to either prevent infection or to treat infection that already exists because they live in such close quarters but mm. a lot of it is to promote growth right and that's something that you know scientists have been trying to to prevent um since the 1970s, at least, mm. um, with, you know, kind of one-off warnings here and there before that. Um, and other countries, you know, in Europe have eliminated growth promotion antibiotics decades ago. But in the United States, you know, the meat lobby, agriculture lobbies have just been so powerful that we have done nothing legislatively about growth promotion antibiotics. And now, actually, as, as of January of this year, there was a voluntary um, removal of growth promotion antibiotics from farms. So we'll see if, if that actually changes the amount of antibiotics used on farms um, mm-hmm. or if it will be a switch from, you know, farmers that are saying, you know, these antibiotics used to be used for growth promotion. Now we're going to say we're using them for disease prophylaxis and disease treatment, but we're kind of going to kind of still be using them somewhat the same way as we used to. Yeah, I'm a little, really, how a little do you skeptical. regulate that? Yeah, right. that's tough. 
And then some of these big, I, I definitely have noticed, and I don't know which chicken um, company it is, but these like huge chicken companies have basically come out and said, yes, we're now going to be antibiotic free. It's really important mm. for us to do that, which I think is amazing. And, and it's a good sign and it's a good precedent to set. But then what happens if they do have uh, an infectious outbreak and they're claiming to be antibiotic free? They must still be able to treat the animals when, when necessary. Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, no one wants to take away antibiotics for for treatment of disease. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you have these these things that will sweep in sometimes. You know, I, I'm most familiar with, with pigs. That's where I've been, <laughs> been studying for the past decade and a half or so. But, um, you know, you'll get this E. coli diarrhea or something that comes through and just wipes out newborn pigs, you know, puts them mm-hmm. down for the count, makes them sick, sometimes, you know, kills them off. So you definitely want to be able to treat those types of things. Um, But, I mean, that's another argument actually to conserve antibiotics and not to use them for growth promotion is, like, you don't want to be spreading all of these antibiotic-resistant E. coli's on the farm that then when animals do get sick, they're going to be resistant to treatment. So, um, so yeah, so you can still treat. um, You just might not be able to label those animals that have been treated in your, you know, antibiotic-free line. You would have to sell them elsewhere. Gotcha. Yeah, that's smart. Yeah, because once you get to be these like massive companies that sell so many different types of products, there's probably room for yeah. for <laughs> that meat, I guess, or that dairy or whatever someplace else. You know, I think people listening, they may not yet see the connection. So I think some of my savvy listeners probably do, but I it's very easy to um, listen to these conversations and say, okay, well, that's an animal animals to have animal antibiotics, animals have animal diseases, and we can work on fixing that problem. But then in the human population, it's a totally separate thing. But of course, another thing that you research is this idea of the zoonotic infection. And that's where the idea of Animals taking antibiotics can have massive ramifications for human health. So why don't we talk a little bit about what a spillover event is? Like, what is a zoonotic infection? Yeah, so it's it's broadly defined as, as one that can move between species. So lots of times we think of these as the infections that originate in animals and move into people, um, which mm. most of them are because, you know, our bias is usually toward human disease, right? That's what we're looking for. So you have the things like Ebola, like Zika, like SARS, like pig MRSA that I study, um, you know, that originate yeah. in animals and then come and infect humans when they're in, in close contact. And a lot um, of times they have names that point to that, right? Like swine flu, right. and bird <laughs> right. flu. and yeah. <laughs> Yes, which are suggestive of the animals they come from. Those are pretty easy to identify. <laughs> Right. So, so, but sometimes it goes the other way too. Um, one of the things, so, so we've been studying swine MRSA since about 2006. Um, I was working, you know, started a professorship at University of Iowa. Iowa is the number one pig producing state in the United States. Um, mm-hmm. Has about maybe five to six times as many pigs as people. So lots of pigs. Um, wow. So, and so I'm assuming they have like big hub- husbandry departments oh, at yeah. universities like that. Yeah. So you can do a lot of good cross-disciplinary work. Right. Well, so I was at, um, so Iowa State University is kind of the ag college. I was at University mm-hmm. of Iowa, which has our medical school and the public health um, college, which is where I was. But nice. we had um, a master's student who was a swine veterinarian who had lived, you know, lived and worked in Iowa his whole life. Um, 30 years of practice as a swine vet. So he was able to get us cool. some connections and get on these farms. And so we were able to look at swine MRSA. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, you mentioned your MRSA infection. Most MRSA infections come from, you know, human to human to human to human contact, right? So, you know, you have it in your nose or in your butt or whatever. And, you know, <laughs> you, you touch it, get it on your hands, leave it on the doorknob, leave it on the gym facilities. And somebody else picks it up and, you know, either they become colonized with it, which just means that it, you know, it can grow in their nose. It may not ever make them sick, but sometimes, you know, like you mentioned, maybe you get it into a little scratch or something and you get sick with it. So most of those are people infections, but, um, you know, in Iowa, we have a lot of swine workers and we saw that they were getting swine MRSA infections and colonization. So, you know, by being close to these pigs, the pigs were taking antibiotics. It was breeding these antibiotic-resistant MRSA in the pigs, not making the pigs sick, but leading to you know a large amount of this bacteria on the pig farms, and then that was being transmitted to the people. 
So, um, so that's what really we've been looking at this now for for almost 15 years, um, trying to figure out kind of you know where all that came from and how much of a risk it is and what happens when that gets into the meat products. Does that end up you know contaminating people's houses and getting into their nose and all of these types of things? Oh man, yeah, and that's just like like you said one example because some of our most sort of treacherous infections like HIV really did start in uh, in another species and mm-hmm. then eventually came over to us. And and they can pass back and forth, right? Like maybe there's another event where we then reinfect the pigs or something and then you have a new evolutionary change to the, the um, bacterium or to the virus, depending on where you're studying. And... Um, and things get way worse and they get even less treatable. I mean, I think that's the thing that is important to point out, right, is that these these are living creatures, bacteria and viruses. They are organisms in and of themselves that colonize other creatures and they themselves are subject to evolution and they change, don't they? Oh, absolutely. And that's actually when we did... Um, so with a colleague, we did some genomic analysis of some of these swine MRSA that we found. We wanted to see, again, like, just like you mentioned, you know, how they'd evolved over time, how they'd moved between species. So he had some isolates that were um, taken from humans in Europe and in China, and we compared those to our, you know, pig and people isolates from here in the United States. And it mm-hmm. looked like this, this swine MRSA strain actually originated in people um, as a methicillin-susceptible strain. So it wasn't a, you know, superbug. It wasn't resistant to all these antibiotics. Um, but then probably from, you know, people working with pigs, you know, people touch the pigs, people breathe on the pigs, people leave their bacteria behind on the farms, and it ended up getting into pigs and replicating there. And then as the pigs were dosed with antibiotics, um, the bacteria became more resistant, um, ended up becoming a superbug, and now it's coming from the pigs back into humans. So we've kind of made this cycle where we have introduced the bacterium to the pigs, got additional resistance genes in the pig population, and now it's coming back to us. So we see those wow. types of things a lot. Jeez, yeah. And I mean, it's it really just is across the board. And like you're studying a population of organisms that's here in the United States, that's in one of our biggest industries, um, that maybe we think of as being a little bit like less, quote unquote, exotic. But then there mm. are other parts of the world where... There are, and of course, viruses have a totally different story than bacteria, but, um, and I'm probably more talking about viruses in this instance, but where there are these organisms that just hang out in these animal reservoirs and kind of hide in the forests and hide. And then all of a sudden you'll have these events where people get very, very sick very quickly because mm-hmm. they'll interact with the animals. Right. Yeah. So you see that with Ebola and that's, um, that's what we think happened also with, you know, the initial spillover of different HIV viruses. So that actually wasn't one, you know, spillover event just from an organism moving from an animal to a person. But we've seen that multiple times with HIV, that some originated from chimpanzees. That's the most common strain that's circulating globally. But others originated from gorillas, another from Mm. sooty mangabees. So, you know, it's all over in these different primate species. And as humans, you know, hunt and eat and butcher them and come in contact with their blood and it's, um, you know, mixes with, with cuts or something in our blood, then it's able to be transmitted to humans and then from human to human. And then you end up with this global epidemic of this virus that, you know, came from our primate ancestors and probably have been there for who knows how many thousands of years infecting them without causing harm to humans. Absolutely. And that's why there are certain um, diseases that scientists and physicians understand won't ever be eradicated, like HIV. Mm. Like, we'll be able to get the epidemic under control, hopefully, but it could always spill back over. Or Ebola. Like, we can't mm. eradicate Ebola because it lives in too many other species. Yet there are other things like poliovirus, which we could era- eradicate because there is no um, reservoir other than human beings. Right. So that's what made smallpox so relatively easy um, to eradicate was that it didn't have a non-human reservoir. I mean, it may have started from one way back in the day from maybe rodents or something else, but, um, you know, it was a a strict human virus by the time it started causing disease in us and it had very obvious symptoms. Um, It wasn't something like MRSA that, you know, people could carry silently 
um, and pass along from person to person. You, when you had smallpox, you know, you had a rash, you had blisters, you looked pretty nasty. So it was pretty easy to diagnose. And then you could go in and, you know, do a vaccination around areas where there were outbreaks and get that under control and kick the virus off the face of the earth, basically. Heck yeah. And of course, <laughs> viruses and bacteria are super different. Like there are some antivirals and there are, of course, um, uh, vaccines for many viruses, but antibacteria or I'm sorry, antibiotics work quite differently because it's a totally different species. It's a totally different organism. Um, and, you know, you could actually argue whether or not viruses are even alive, but we'll save that right. for another episode. <laughs> yeah. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. But bacteria are most definitely alive. They are these um, simple yet deceptively complex organisms. And this is what your research really focuses on. So I would love to maybe break down for a second, like take a step back from the top line conversations we always hear about in the news about, okay, antibiotic resistant staff or antibiotic resistant gonorrhea or antibiotic resistant whatever, don't, you know, don't take an antibiotic if you have a viral infection or make sure you finish your entire course of your antibiotic. Like we know this conventional wisdom, but I, I wonder how many people actually know why that's important. Like what is happening at, from an evolutionary perspective when a bacterium, this living creature, goes from being susceptible to a drug, the drug can kill it, to being like, mwahaha, you have no effect on me. <laughs> like what is happening within the population of that bacterium? Right. So a lot of people have kind of the misconception that, that antibiotics cause resistance, which isn't exactly true. Mm. So with any population of bacteria – you know, you have millions to billions of individual cells, right? So whether it's, you know, in your nose or in your blood or on your skin or whatever, you have a very diverse population of bacteria. They all may come from, you know, one or two individual cells initially, but as they grow as a population, as they expand, as they multiply, they, you know, develop mutations. So each one has maybe a little, you know, one or two copying errors in its DNA each generation. And then because they're bacteria and they can multiply every 20 to 30 minutes, um, yeah. you know, those, those mutations increase. So, you know, we, we think about bacterial populations as, you know, this really diverse, different lineages of these organisms. And so, it's very likely that amongst those you know, billion or billions of bacteria, one of them will have a pre-existing mutation, you know, something in it that would allow it to, to survive in the face of some of these antibiotics. Okay? But if you're not on antibiotics, there will be no selection pressure for that particular you know, one or two cells um, to survive and the others to die out. So they're yeah, just they kind don't of know hanging it. around. It's just right. They're hanging yeah. around. They're hanging around with all their buddies. Their buddies are susceptible. They're not. Doesn't matter though, because they're not. You know, it's like a plant being um, 
susceptible to drought and some of its plant friends are really good at living through the drought until there's a drought, uh, like they're all going to be thriving. They don't right. know the difference. Exactly. So then when you take an antibiotic, then what you do is you, you know, wipe out that entire population that are susceptible, but you leave behind those one or two that might have, you know, a, a mutation. It could be either a single base pair mutation that leads to a change in a protein that binds the antibiotic. It could be a, a gene that's acquired through horizontal transmission, which is where, like, I would give a gene to you. <laughs> um, bacteria mm-hmm. can do that. We obviously can't. Um, yeah, but they so, just jump back and forth, huh? Yep, exactly. Bacteria have, have sex. They can swap genes amongst each other. Um, so sometimes resistant genes will be carried on some of those genes that they're out of swapping. Um, so that yeah. can lead to, you know, to this transmission of resistance as well. And so when you take an antibiotic, you're selecting for those bacteria that have those resistance genes in the population. And then those become clonal. Those take over the population. All of a sudden you have billions of them where before they were, you know, one in a billion. And so that's where, um, you know, now the antibiotics don't work because you have an entire population that is resistant to them and you can spread them to other people. You can spread them among, you know, staff in the hospital, among patients in a hospital. So you get this entire outbreak in, you know, an ICU or in a burn unit or something like that. So it becomes really nasty when, when you start using antibiotics and start selecting for those resistant bacteria that otherwise, you know, might just get, get drowned in the flood of, of their other colleagues. Yeah, I mean it's a it's a small and kind of complicated if you don't know a lot about microbiology, but important distinction that this is a natural resistance that bacteria will always have. It's just a fluke of evolution, but taking antibiotics draws it out. It right. kills off all of the susceptible um, bacteria and makes, in essence the um, resistant ones, quote unquote, stronger, really what it's doing is it's making them more um, populous. Right, exactly. And if you think um, about- Because they don't have any competition. Right, right. And people are surprised, you know, they do these studies and they look at caves that have been untouched by man for thousands of years, or they drill in ice cores in, you know, Greenland or something that have been frozen for thousands of years. And lo and behold, in the bacteria there- you find antibiotic resistance genes. Yeah. And this is, you know, not surprising to people who know <laughs> about antibiotics because <laughs> most of our antibiotic drugs have come from natural products. I mean, obviously the first one, penicillin, came from a mold. We have lots of them that came from soil bacteria and things like that. So, you know, we harnessed these antibiotics for our use, but they originated from nature. So, you know, you'll have this population of bacteria in nature that harbor these antibiotic resistance genes. And so that, again, that kind of, you know, puts them out there. And then when you use that antibiotic, that selects for them. So these are already all over. It's not like it's something that needs to, you know, needs to evolve on its own. It's it's out there. These have been used as, you know, wars between bacterial species and between bacteria and fungi and things like that for, you know, hundreds of thousands, millions, billions of years. Um, So they're already out there. It's just that when we use the antibiotics, we are increasing their frequency, you know, billion fold in our bodies and in in our environments. Absolutely. You know, and I, I feel like you made an important distinction that I've heard some other researchers make too, which again is subtle, but important. You, you're, you're using the term a lot. You're saying these antibiotic resistant genes, because it's really not about the individual bacterium. It's not about the, uh, you know, the one unit, the one cell, that little guy. It's about the genes that are being constantly swapped and the genes that are prevalent in the population. Right. I mean, we can really think of almost all the bacteria you know, that live on your body, that live in your guts, that live in your mouth, you know, for women that live in our vagina. You know, we think of those as, as again, kind of one big organism almost. Um, mm. And, you know, even if they're completely different species, if they're, you know, I mentioned before, like the gram positive, the gram negatives, you know, two different lineages of bacteria, but they can often swap these genes between themselves. They don't care. You know, bacteria are slutty. They're promiscuous. They can, you know, exchange their (laughs) genes. They don't care who they're exchanging them with. Um, And if other bacteria can pick them up 
and it will help them survive, then those are going to be maintained in the population. So, so yeah, it's again, it's much different than, you know, than in, than in people where, um, our, our, our genetics, you know, go from, you know, mother and father to child and on down bacteria, they don't care about all that. Yeah, it's just spreading around basically for from our perspective at least completely willy-nilly because yep. of course the, these interactions are happening at the tiniest level and they're happening fast. That's why it always amazes me when I mean it amazes me for so many reasons when people are like, I don't quote unquote believe in evolution. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's like, wow, gosh, but there's so much evidence. But especially if you have ever studied microbiology, because you can physically watch evolution under a microscope. Mm. You can see it happening with your own eyes. Oh, yeah. And I mean, even many of the people will, will believe, you know, even if they don't believe in, in evolution from, you know, man to, or monkey to man and things like that, um, mm. a lot of them, you can get them to accept, quote unquote, microevolution. Like, okay, that populations change. They just don't think, yeah. you know, it can change enough to go from one cell up to people. Oh, yeah, the speciation argument, yes, yeah, is like yes. what freaks them out a little bit. <laughs> but that's true. Like bacteria are kind of a different animal because it is, I mean, that's the great thing, right, about being a researcher and being able to study microorganisms is that they're easily manipulatable. Mm. You can watch multiple um, generations happening quite quickly. And so whereas if you want to induce a change, like at the, um, I actually just recently interviewed one of the co-authors of a book about the, uh, silver fox experiments in uh -huh. Russia. Um, and of course there, like, you know, it's, it's forcing evolution, kind of domestication, this artificial selection pressures, but it takes age. Like this experiment's <laughs> been going on for, you know, decades. Uh -huh. Whereas with, because you got to wait for them to like become sexually mature and then they got to make offspring. But with bacteria, they just got to like divide. Uh -huh. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> there's awesome. some, some fascinating work. So um, Richard Linsky, he's a professor at Michigan state. Um, he has been doing studies of E. coli for, gosh, 20, 25 years maybe. Um, just, you know, every day taking from one flask, moving to another, you know, and keep doing that over and over. And I don't know how many, you know, thousands of generations of E. coli they have now. But, you know, it's amazing that you can get these things to grow on completely new substrates, to, um, you know, use different chemicals as food sources and all of these types of things and follow their trajectory over these decades and see what has changed, what they think can change, what are the limits of change, you know, all yeah. these things. So, so yeah. 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 They really can be so hardy if you follow those, those mutation mm -hmm. lines, like, you know, it's like, oh, it can survive UV radiation. They can survive, like, all the things that should kill them. Like, oh, if you yeah. find the right <laughs> individuals, you can grow whole new lines of these things that are, like, impervious yes, yep. <laughs> to any damage, which is, like, fascinating but also scary as crap. <laughs> and, of course, you personally, you study um, – the pig bacteria. Mm. Are you a microbiologist or are you an ecologist? Like what, I mean, you probably wear so many hats. Yeah. It depends on who I'm talking to. My, my PhD was in very basic microbiology. I looked at, you know, this one gene regulon, couple genes all strung together and put them in a mouse model of infection and, you know, saw what it did and how it changed gene regulation and things like that. Um, so I'm trained as a very basic microbiologist, and then I did postdoctoral work in infectious disease epidemiology because I, I knew I didn't want to just, oh, cool. you know, look at these couple of proteins my entire career. So, so I'm more of more of the infectious disease epidemiologist. I don't do a whole lot of, of you know, bacterial manipulation or anything like that anymore. But we do a lot of, of you know, genomic work of trying to track kind of molecularly. Um, how these bacteria evolve and how they move between these populations and things like that. Oh, I mean, it must be so helpful being somebody who's looking at the bigger picture, but who really understands the foundational things that are happening underneath uh, the spread of antibacterial or antibiotic resistance. Mm -hmm. Like it's so hard anymore in science because we've gotten to be so incredibly sophisticated with our understandings, with our tools with our terminology, it's so hard to have a breadth of knowledge. So many experts have this really narrow focus. So anytime that you have a background in a field that is allied to the field you're working on, I mean, I just think it's fascinating and you must be, 
you, you must have, a, I, I think, a richer understanding of the things that you're studying because uh, of that. I think so, but I'm biased. <laughs> but but that's, that's the nice <laughs> thing about working in science, too, is that, you know, sometimes I'll have these ideas that, you know, I want to look at, but I have, I have nothing but the most kind of basic of knowledge of, you know, some other area. So I bring in colleagues who are you know, bioinformaticists. And um, we have one grant that's pending with a molecular, a, a mathematical modeler to try to, you know, again, even take it up one step um, and take all of our molecular data and figure out how that's kind of working in, in the real world and, and things through his models. And um, so we, we do a lot, some of the ecologists. So it's, it's nice to be able to know a lot of things and do a lot of things myself, but also to know where my gaps still are and, you know, bring in those people who have that knowledge and, you know, make a really nice working group with, um, you know, an even bigger breadth of knowledge than I have myself. So that's one of the great things I love about science is just being able to collaborate like that. Oh, for sure. For sure. And of course you also, you don't just, you know, slave away in the lab or I don't know if you actually work in a lab yeah, or if you're more like outdoors, <laughs> but yeah. Um, but of course you don't just slave away doing, doing the science. You are a great science communicator. Oh, thank you. Which is becoming, yeah, of course. I mean, it's becoming increasingly more important and especially with an individual who, um, or I shouldn't say an individual, but with a, uh, a focus like yours, which has such implications for, um, for global health. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, I definitely think it's important to get out of our, you know, quote unquote ivory tower and, you know, mm -hmm. talk about the policy implications of our work and just educate people about, you know, antibiotic resistance, why it's important, why, you know, why people are talking about things like the post-antibiotic era and how we can hopefully prevent that. Um, and, you know, about infectious diseases in general, because there's, there's, you know, there's, there's so much out there that I think scares people about infectious disease. <laughs> you know, you mentioned the bird flu and the, the swine flu and stuff like that. And, and I think people hear those types of things and, and just don't have any concept of what their real risk is or Ebola. I mean, when yeah. Ebola came to the United States, you know, it was very much, Lots of the pundits were, you know, of course, everyone's going to die and we have to shut down yeah. the borders and shut down all travel and these types of things. While, you know, experts were trying to say, no, it's not really that contagious. Please listen to the scientists. And, and so yeah, I think it's like it's not only is it not sometimes. that contagious, but these people are like in like airlocked quarantines, <laughs> yes, you yes. know, it's like the most intense um, quarantine you could possibly get. Yeah. And that's the thing, you know, it, it doesn't help when bad science communication, or maybe I should more uh, appropriately say irresponsible science mm. communication exists out there that sensationalizes these things that are, oh, Ebola, hemorrhagic fever, oh, mm. everybody's bleeding out of their eyeballs, and right. oh my God, it's the most <laughs> horrific way to die. And it's like, of course, like it is dangerous. And of course, people who are living in these like incredibly impoverished areas who are heavily susceptible and who don't have access to appropriate medical care and just appropriate as humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply basic hygiene mm -hmm. um, to prevent transmission and also who are struggling with cultural um, blockages mm -hmm. to, um, you know, misinformation and things like that for treatment. Like it, people can't contextualize that. And then they're like, Ebola is coming to kill us all. <laughs> yes. And it's like, Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> so crazy. <laughs> um, yeah. And, and, but, but at the same time, you know, the idea of 
an epidemic, the idea, because it does happen and there, it is a real risk mm -hmm. um, depending on the nature of the infection. Um, we're not good at risk benefit. No. We're just not good at <laughs> risk analysis at all. We're terrible. And then that's... The, we did not evolve for that. Uh, no. And, and that's the, the problem with so much of this. You know, when Zika came out, that it was either, you know, oh, no one should bother about this, no one should care, or, oh, no, everyone's going to die, you know? And, and there yeah. is a happy middle where, you know, yes, this is important. Yes, this does seem to be causing, you know, these these odd birth defects. But in the United States, it's not like everyone is going to get Zika. You know, we have things to protect us and things like that. So it is hard to kind of hit that you know, that spot where you want to educate people, you want to, you know, say, yes, this is real, but, you know, you're probably not going to yeah. get it, especially if you're not living in the South where these mosquitoes exist. And if you have air conditioning and screens and all of these other things. So it is really hard to kind of hit that sweet spot to educate people, but not scare the crap out of them. It is, right? Because at the same time, you want to make sure that if you are pregnant, that you don't travel to a tropical area mm. where the risk of infection is really high. So, of course, you see the warning signs all over the airport. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, Joe Schmo, who's like a 45-year-old healthy man, is like, ah, I'm going to die of yes. Zika. And you're like, wait, no. <laughs> yes, <laughs> like, right. Do not worry. Right. Yeah, it's a, t it's, a, it's a tough balance. So I think that, you know, good science communication and individual scientists who are in the trenches doing the work who can then turn around and be descriptive of the work that they can do on outlets just like the one you're on right now. It's such an important public service. So I'm really glad that you, um, you're taking the time to chat with me today. Yeah, well, thank you. I agree. I think you're doing great work here, too. <laughs> Oh, stop. I mean, go on. No, but really, why don't we talk a little bit about specifically what kinds of projects you're focused on right now in your work? Because we've talked about this stuff sort, sort of top line. Mm -hmm. um, you did mention that you work specifically with um, pigs and with staph aureus. Mm -hmm. So like, what are you, what are the research questions you're trying to answer Yeah, right now? so we're trying to figure out a little bit more, um, one, how common this is in pigs. So one of the biggest issues we have is getting access to farms. Um, not surprisingly, I mean, hmm. for a lot of reasons, farmers don't want strangers on their farms. You know, I could bring in some disease myself. I could be carrying in, you know, my own influenza that could infect the pigs or something like that. So there are biosecurity reasons. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm a scientist. They might not necessarily trust me. So maybe they don't want me in for that. They think I'm already biased because, you know, I've done some of this work before and I maybe have preconceived ideas about what I'm going to find on their farm or something. And also, mm -hmm. if, if I do find MERS on their farm, <clears throat> you know, do they have a liability? Um, what if they're... Yeah, it's bad for business. Right, exactly. What if one of their workers gets sick or something like that? So, you know, for all those reasons, it, it makes it very difficult to, to go out to a farm and be able to test and see, you know, if they have swine MRSA or not. So we have a lot of these studies in the United States, but they've been done mostly in Iowa and in North Carolina, which is the number two pig producing state. But even in North Carolina, they don't have a lot of studies in pigs. They have a lot of studies in pig workers because they're a little bit easier to access. So we're trying mm -hmm. to fill some of those gaps, um, trying to also to see um, not only, you know, if this, this bacterium is there in pigs, but if it's causing disease in people. And if so, how common that is. And if people are getting it um, that are not necessarily exposed to pigs, but may get it from other routes like like food or you know, handling raw pork or things like that. So we're trying okay. to fill in some of those data gaps um, here in the United States with some some other studies that we have proposed and that are undergoing review at at granting agencies now. Um, but we also actually do a lot of global health work. Um, we have some projects that we've been doing in Mongolia and Nigeria. Um, and a current one in Nepal, which are all countries that don't have a lot of surveillance for antibiotic resistance and for Staph aureus. You know, they have all kinds of other health issues. So, so MRSA is definitely not one of their top issues. Um, but we have colleagues there in, in hospitals that can pretty easily just get us samples of their Staph aureus and, and other types of bacteria. And we can, you know, do some typing of them, see what's there as far as antibiotic resistance, see what's there as far as the different strains that are circulating and things like that. So um, we're trying to do a little bit more of that to really understand, you know, how these superbugs are moving not only, you know, in local communities or here in the United States, but really around the world.
Fascinating. I mean, it's so it's so important. I would love to get what your kind of outlook is as a researcher who knows the data, who looks at this on a regular basis, because, of course, it's not all doom and gloom, but it's also not all, you know, sunshine and flowers. Like, this is a legitimate, mm. real concern. That's why you're dedicating your life <laughs> right. to it. So how, you know, what what is your sort of professional prognosis? How are you um, feeling about how we're going to fare as a society in the face of antibiotic resistant, um, infection. Yeah. It, it concerns me. I mean, especially when I have, mm. um, you know, my mom has multiple sclerosis and so she's, um, in and out of the hospital on, you know, a somewhat regular basis. She's had staph infections before she actually had, um, a wound infection. It wasn't staph, but, um, it wouldn't heal and had to have several of her toes amputated because of that. So, you know, when, yeah. when, when people go into the hospital like that, and I know there's a chance that they could, you know, acquire an antibiotic resistant infection in the hospital, you know, it makes me nervous. Um, it makes me nervous, you know, thinking about my kids and their kids um, in, you know, 20 or 40 years and what's going to be left for them. And, you know, I do have hope that I think we can figure this out. Um, you know, I think we can kind of stay on the treadmill of, you know, creating new drugs and holding things off for a little bit longer like we've been doing. But I have hope that, you know, maybe some of these other new technologies will will come into play too. Um, you know, there's been some work on the CRISPR-Cas system. Um, so this, you know, molecular mm -hmm. editing where maybe you'd be able to edit out some of these antibiotic resistant genes and change these bacteria from resistant to drugs back to susceptible and able to be treated. Um, oh, we could just start using penicillin again yeah, for everything. Could, what, that could would you be imagine great. That? Of course, and everyone would have their allergies and we'd still have issues, but you know. Oh <laughs> but, yeah, that's you know. true. They almost won't even give penicillin to people <laughs> yeah. anymore because so many people are allergic. But you know, some but of these other still drugs. work against. Huh. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, totally. Doesn't penicillin still work against strep? Usually, yes. It takes more penicillin to kill strep than it did, you know, 40 years ago. But usually strep gotcha. are still sensitive, which is really weird. And we don't completely understand that. Um, Super weird, yeah. right? But hey, maybe we can use CRISPR-Cas9 right. to make them susceptible <laughs> to the antibiotics again and and to alter the, the genetics so that I'm no longer allergic to sulfa drugs. Wouldn't that there be nice? There you go. I don't know if that would be the most important <laughs> use of that, but hey. <laughs> but there's I would love it if I didn't look like I had the measles oh, every yeah. time I took an antibiotic. You know what I mean? Yeah, those are um, nasty. Yeah, because we're starting to do that with a lot like peanuts, like trying to eliminate the allergens. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's fascinating, the cool right. stuff that geneticists are doing with CRISPR. Right. And so also, you know, other uh, other ways that we could, you know, treat these things or, or prevent them in the first place, which of course is best. Um, you know, there's, there's been a lot of work, of course, on vaccines against various um, you know, superbugs. Um, you know, we don't have one for staff. We've been working on it for a number of years. Um, but we do have, have vaccines for some bacteria like um, strep pneumo, which is another uh, bacteria that can cause ear infections and cause pneumonia. And drive, you know, in the past has driven a lot of antibiotic use. And now with the vaccine, we've oh, seen, we've seen strep pneumo decrease. And so, you know, that's one area where at least we don't have to use as many drugs to treat it. So I think that's... Oh, why don't I have that vaccine? <laughs> Is that something where it's only given to people who are susceptible? Um, it's mostly given to, to kids and to um, the elderly. So yeah, you're, you're, you're yeah, in that kind of like middle people... group where you won't have to get it for... A while. Gotcha. But like if you have a chest tube or you're intubated, right. you know, like people who maybe have a chance of getting pneumonia easier yep, or something. Exactly. That, oh, that's great to hear. Hopefully we get a vaccine, you know, developed against um, gonorrhea. Yeah. These sexually transmitted infections are so scary. Yes. Like if we could just vaccinate against all of yeah. them, well, and there's, it'd be there's, the 70s again. <laughs> there's been some work too on, on probiotics. So there, mostly those have been, yeah, you know, yeah. kind of hype and not always living up to the potential. But um, Ed Yong just wrote about a, a study out yesterday um, where they did give babies probiotics and it prevented a certain type of E. coli infection. So, you know, you have, oh, you cool. have that, you have fecal transplants for Clostridium difficile, which was another hard to treat, you know, bacterial infection. So I think there's promise in a lot of different avenues. Um, we just have to mm -hmm. see kind of if we can, can keep them going enough um, so that we don't really hit that, that post-antibiotic era where nothing is working. 
Absolutely. And I think that work from individuals like yourself is so important to keep kind of pounding the pavement and ensuring that um, that we're doing everything that we can in order to sort of secure a, um, a future where superbugs are kept in check. So I, I have to say that I appreciate that. And, and Tara, before, um, before we go, you know, I close every episode by asking my guests the same two questions. And I'm always excited when I have a guest on who um, who's really focused and expert in a specific area because it generally colors their answers. <laughs> okay. <And> so <laughs> I would love to hear your perspective on these. And um, they are pretty big picture <laughs> questions. So, um, yeah, sorry to uh, make you think think deeply <laughs> oh, this early no. in the morning. Actually, it's not even morning. It's like mid-afternoon. <laughs> yeah, we're, yeah. Um, uh, like, what am I talking about? Um, okay, so, so they are, when you think about the future, in whatever context is really relevant to you, we could be talking about your own personal future, the future of your family, the future of your work. We could even be talking about the future of um, our society or of, you know, the globe even. <laughs> um, number one, yeah, so really kind of broad, um, <laughs> Number one, what is the thing that most um, does concern you, that keeps you up the most at night, that you worry about, that preoccupi- preoccupies your mind? But then on the flip side of that, you know, so we don't cry ourselves to sleep <laughs> tonight, um, what are you really hopeful and optimistic and excited about? Oh, boy. Um, I think, I mean, I think a lot about, obviously, global health and healthcare in general mm. and just healthy people. <laughs> so... Living in the United States as one of the developed countries, which of course lacks any kind of universal health care, um, you know, I, yeah, I do right? think about how long that will be able to stand because that that colors so many other things, right? I mean, even you know, we talked so much about antibiotic resistance, but one of the reasons why we don't know as much about antibiotic resistance in the United States is because we don't have these great surveillance systems that other countries do. That you know, just everyone has their their health care, and you just put in an electronic record and you can use that anywhere in the freaking country. Um, so, so yeah. I think about, you know, especially in the United States, where our healthcare is going and where we're going to be in, you know, 20 or 40 years and in developing countries, you know, how, how we can help lead and get them to a place where they have public health infrastructure and things like that, that we've seen again, a place such a big role in global disease, um, like with the Ebola outbreak, if they had had, you know, maybe good public health infrastructure, it certainly would not have gotten as big as it did. Um, so I guess I think a lot about those infrastructure issues. <laughs> that sounds really, really boring, but uh, I think that's the oh, basis so of important. almost everything else, right? If you have healthcare, if you have surveillance, if you have, you know, this infrastructure in place, then everything else can kind of fall into place and keep people healthy, keep populations healthy here and abroad. So I think I guess that's the bad thing, but that's also kind of the good thing is that I think we're getting better at that. Um, I think, mm-hmm. you know, globally, on most areas, you know, we're doing much better than we were 30 or 40 years ago, um, with the big exception really being like obesity and, and those um, diseases associated with it. Um, but, you know, infectious diseases, we have really done a lot of good over the past 30 or 40 years. Um if we can just keep resistance under control, if we can find new ways to get around that. Um, and if we keep moving toward positive interventions um, here and around the globe that will improve health, then I think, you know, I think we have a good future. So I'll go, I'll go with those. <laughs> I love it. I think those are great, great responses and, and very different than, you know, uh, it's not uncommon on this show for people to talk about climate change, mm-hmm. which I get, like, obviously it's, it's incredibly pressing mm-hmm. and it's, um, it's, it's really important, but it's, it's, um, I think it's good to hear a fresh perspective, especially from somebody who's doing such good to, to try to tackle, um, these issues that we're facing. So Tara, I have to thank you for joining me today. This was just so enlightening. No, thank you. Yeah, this was great. Absolutely. And can you let everybody know, I know you're very active in social media, so let everybody know where they can find you, where they can say that they heard the episode and, and, and drop a line. Sure. Um, I have a website, just tarasysmith.com, that has kind of a collection of everything. I'm on Twitter at Aetiology, A-E-T-I-O-L-O-G-Y. And I have a Facebook page, with, which is just also Tara C. Smith. So I'm around everywhere. 
Awesome. Guys, tell her that you heard the show and tell her that you are being very vigilant when you take your antibiotics. Um, or don't <laughs> she, take them. Don't ask for them. Don't take it. them. Or just, yes, or just don't decide. take them unless you absolutely need <laughs> yes. them. Exactly. Um, well, again, thank you so much for joining me. This was a blast. And everybody else listening, thank you for coming back week after week. I'm really looking forward to the next time we all get together to talk nerdy. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.